Welcome to episode 110 of The Digital Life, a show about our adventures in the world of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett. This week, we have an excerpt from an interview I conducted with John McKay, co-founder of Technical Machine, on disrupting the product design lifecycle and the open-source Tesla II hardware development platform. So let's get started. So what what are some of the ways that that you're seeing emerging tech disrupt the the product design life cycle? I think the most um, disruptive element of the product design life cycle is crowdfunding at this point mm-hmm. um, and just being able to prove that um, you know this market exists before you spend all the resources getting your manufacturing line up and running um, and so we're seeing like a, a huge, a huge, huge drop in the barrier to entry um, from from crowdfunding um, because it's just becoming the status quo where it's like you know if, if I have an idea I can build it quickly and then I can I can get it out there um, and and things like Kickstarter do a really good job of helping you market it first and, and getting people to look at it. Um, so instead of having to, tra- the traditional way is to, you know, do some R&D to what people want, um, you know, do some prototyping, show it to a few users, uh, figure out what parts you want, go get quotes for all those parts from people in China, find someone who can build it um, in China and uh, set up all this infrastructure, then you build a couple million of them, hopefully you have some contracts with, you know, large retailers if you're building a consumer product and then you put it out there and see how it goes. Mm-hmm. That's just so much risk and so much investment. And nowadays, you know, you there are so many um, really, really good uh, prototyping technologies like Tesla, like Arduino, like Raspberry Pi, BeagleBoard, um, that uh, it takes very little resources to get up and running and to buy different sensors and peripherals from Sparkfront and, and, uh, and Adafruit and, and be able to build, you know, a, a prototype to the first degree of approximation um, and get feedback from friends. And, and once that's good enough, you know, you, you should obviously spend some time figuring out about how much it's going to cost you before you, you bring it to market through Kickstarter. But that, that time to, to market is, is drastically reduced. Um, and we're even seeing, um, I've, I've seen, I think, three different types of three different websites that are offering to make um, finding finding fabricators and, and sort suppliers easier, more like Yelp for, mm. for manufacturing. And one that comes to mind is, is Tindy, tindy.com slash biz, I think. And they're, they're sort of leading this effort. And there's a couple of others I forget the name of. And the fact that that whole area of product development is becoming less opaque is really critical because – and as we were building Tesla, we, we came from a web development background. And we just wanted to be able to make hardware at the same sort of iteration speed that we make software. And obviously, mm-hmm. it's not going to be entirely possible because there's there's shipping physical goods involved in that. Um, but we can. There's a lot of room for improvement. And what we found was that you know we we could get pretty far with just using off the shelf parts. But then as soon as you jump into the world of custom custom boards and, and building these things yourselves, 
it, it's totally opaque because a lot of people want to keep that information secret because it's a competitive advantage to know where you can buy the cheapest boards from, you know, where you can find the cheapest factories. And, mm-hmm. you know, factories in, in the Far East will treat Westerners different from people from China. So, um, you know, the whole process of how do I find a broker in China to get me a better price, all this is um, has been left opaque by the by the monoliths who already do hardware manufacturing. And we're seeing, uh, as this hardware renaissance approaches, uh, we're seeing a lot of people wanting to shine some light in those spaces and make it a lot more accessible. So there's still a long way to go to make it easy for people to know how to say, okay, I started prototyping this on you know, a Tesla or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now I need to make 10,000 of them. How do I make sure that this is cost-effective and the best design? Um, so, so yeah, there's a long way to go there, but but there's definitely some improvement being made. And then, you know, it, it, at Technical Machine, we've also been doing some a little bit of research into as as someone who knows software really well, how can I use software to to highlight what sort of the, the optimization paths are for when I'm building hardware. So if I've written mm-hmm. a program that's you know three megabytes in size. And I'm using a development kit that has 32 megabytes of RAM and flash. Well, can I move to you know a, a four megabyte chip? And if I can, what are what are the cheapest sources I could find online for that chip? And how how much are available in quantity? And what does the end of life look like for that chip? Mm-hmm. So using more software to to do sort of the mundane tasks of finding the right part for what you're looking for, um, and then eventually being able to do things like stitch together schematics so that people don't have to spend the time doing these super, super mundane, but tedious tasks of connecting one pin from one part to another pin of another part when it's already outlined in their head and, and, and in their code essentially. Um, so, so we're doing some research into that as well, but it's very, very far from, from completion or being able to be used by other people. Right. That's, that's interesting because one of the, um, one of the themes that's cropping up as I'm doing, interviews with designers and engineers uh, in this space is that there's some convergence between um, the the attitudes and methods of software development that are being sort of cross-pollinated with um, hardware and, and device uh, design and engineering. So, so you're getting some of the agility that you would expect from software and 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 sort of a product that you can iterate on um combined with the the hardware elements which traditionally have not um you know have not iterated quite as much and and their product life cycles are usually um much longer um so so are you are you seeing i mean clearly you're seeing some of that yourself yeah, absolutely. I th- I think it's it's slowly been building up for a while now. Like if if you look at hardware parts themselves, you know, 10, 15 years ago, a lot of it was just a bunch of passives, capacitors, inductors, resistors. Um, you know, there, there of course there were ICs and things like that, but a lot of it was just built up from these fundamental building blocks. But now we're getting things like um, essentially the equivalent of software modules where I just buy this accelerometer and I put it on my board and it, I 
have to route a couple of lines to it, but those are essentially the interface, just like software exposes an interface. So it's been it's been converging towards being as much like software as possible, uh, and I think that it's really starting to accelerate now. Yeah, that's that's completely fascinating to me. Are you aware of any? Um, uh, so so if if you're a you know if you're a software developer, there there are some preferred methods for attacking problems, um, especially if you're um, an agileista, right? So uh, you might practice Scrum or 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 some flavor of that. Are is there a are, are there similar movements sort of afoot in the hardware world or the hardware software hybrid world? You're talking about project management techniques that take into account the mechanics of hardware. Yes, um, exactly. Yep. I don't, I don't think there are any formal sort of processes around it. Uh, something that we've been doing in house that we wrote a blog post about a couple months ago is essentially uh, designing the hardware with our mm. with our design tools and submitting it to be manufactured. And while it's being manufactured, we write all the software tests that need to be made for that revision of the board. Mm -hmm. So that as soon as the board comes back about a week later, we've all been working hard on making sure that it can be tested and it can be tested right away and proven whether or not it works. And if it doesn't work, then we can iterate really quickly, make changes in one to two days and send it back out. Um, so that's something that we've been doing, but, but to your point, I haven't seen a huge movement around project management techniques around hardware designs. Yeah, I would think, I mean, because that's one of the, I mean, depending on your point of view, that, that, that could be one of the sort of the strengths of, of software development is that um, you have these, these various um, techniques and, and tactics for organizing the way you're uh, addressing pieces of the problem um, as opposed to, you know, the, uh, um, the waterfall approach that, that made software development um, tedious and, and take a long time. Um, so, so I almost feel like something like that, I mean, I have no idea what I'm talking about here, but, but I feel like something like that, uh, is, is coming or, or at least people must be thinking about along those lines, um, if they're drawing on software, uh, development methodologies. Yeah. And another thing that is common or becoming more common, I think, um, or maybe this has been the status quo forever. I'm not sure because I, you know, I just started doing this about three or four years ago. Um, is buying a development board that is fairly close to what you want your custom hardware to be. So back when we started building Tessel, um, it was based on a specific microcontroller of LPC 1830. Um, so what we did was we found a development kit from the same manufacturers of that microcontroller with that microcontroller and um, external memory and an accelerometer. And essentially it was more than we needed, but it was a fairly good replication of something we could buy off the shelf and start developing the software on while the hardware, custom hardware was being made in tandem using that development board as sort of the reference design. Uh, so at that stage, we're able to continue building software, which is really important as we work at kinks in our custom hardware. Right, right. So so leveraging some pre-existing pieces that that represents um, 
some portion of of what you want in the in the custom in the custom piece almost almost akin to uh um using using a a javascript library that that you're going to you know pare down um when you finally ship the software but using like jquery or something to as a placeholder um if we were talking about 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 coding yeah uh, that's a good metaphor and I can send you here. I'll send you a link to uh, an article, a blog post I wrote that officially has um, all the tips I've learned from how to how to move as fast as you can in a hardware company when you come from a software background and you're right. used to really fast iteration. Um, and it, it mostly just covers like test-driven development, um, uh, um, using reference designs, and sort of the things that we're talking about here. Yeah, that's so. So I want to dig a little bit more on that. Um, you mentioned that um, you know you you'd been doing this you know portion of your career for about three years. Is there um, are there a lot of uh, engineers who are being attracted to this space based on the fact that it is easier to produce products now? Um, in other words, are you a representative of a much of a much larger group uh, of like an engineering surge um, into into um, uh, the product design space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that we're just starting to see the the beginnings of this movement. And I think mm -hmm. that there's a couple of factors leading into it. Um, I mean, number one, software is extremely extremely saturated right now. So. Any idea you come up with in for a software product, it's going to be made already, um, and probably made three or four times, and that gets frustrating to people. At least it was frustrating to me um, back when I was in college. I would, you know, I'd have ideas for things I wanted to do, but they were made, and I, I got so tired of being constrained to either the web or the the phone that I wanted to learn how to build my own hardware. So I started taking classes in that, um, and it's it's very very freeing to say okay, I have an idea and it doesn't matter what form it takes up. Like I don't have to build for the web. I don't have to build for a phone. I can just make sure that I build the best possible user experience, whatever form that takes and deliver that to the market. Um, so being able to have that freedom of expression and, and, and deliver a product quickly is, is pretty important. And the other, the other factor that's driving it, which we've we talked about already, is the fact that it, the barrier to entry has just dropped enormously. Um, the fact that anyone can pick up a microcontroller in sensors and, and get going right away, and it's becoming easier and easier to connect to the internet. So we're seeing, you know, in terms of IoT, there's a bunch of what we call, you know, layers to the to the stack that are being filled. So there's like the hardware layer, the networking layer, the communication layer, the application layer, um, and there's different companies that have been jumping up. To, to fill each layer so that um, you know any startup that that jumps up in the in the hardware space doesn't necessarily have to fill all those roles um, as as a hardware startup these days you don't just have to build hardware you have to have a hardware ready you have to have a mobile app you have to have a website you have to have a backend so there's all these different pieces to the puzzle which seem really intimidating at first but the fact that uh, all these tools have jumped up, um, and made it really easy to integrate them together it means that you just have to start with what's what's the domain logic for what you're starting with and you could put these pieces together right away and maybe eventually you optimize out um, you know these specific services so that you can 
pay less or have it better tuned to your product or whatever, but it's just become so easy to get it all together. Um, and arguably the only thing really missing from IoT stack right now is the security layer, which nobody seems to be really keen on jumping on. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wow. Hey, um, that's, that's really interesting because I mean, there's, um, and this might be a separate topic altogether, but, um, from what I can tell there, there aren't a lot of open standards in the same way for, you know, IOT as there were for the web at its inception. Right. So in terms of at least the, I don't know if this is one of the layers in, in your stack, but the, the communication, um, there's there's definitely competing um completing methods for for communication with uh iot is that is that a limiting factor right now or or do you think it, that's going to shake uh shake out and and there will be some dominant um standards going forward whether they're open or not Gee, sorry so i understand your question you're asking about like when the web started it seemed like there was a bunch of of agreed upon standards but right, right. now IoT space there doesn't seem to be correct. Um, yeah, I, I I wasn't really around when the web was starting, but there, I can definitely agree that there are a lot of competing standards right now. Um, in terms of, I, I think what's going to win out is what is going to be open. Um, that's a, a big belief of mine, and why all of our hardware and software is open source. I think. Um, the thing that everybody is using and is free to use and gets audited often for security issues is the thing that's going to be open source. And I think that that's what's going to be ultimately adopted. Um, I think it'll take some time for sure, but, um, and, and figuring out how to interoperate between devices, you, you're going to be able, if, if a device has an open source API, you, I mean, it's going to be a lot easier to connect to it. So once more devices have these open source APIs with a really heavy duty security model on top of it, which also is hopefully open source, I think we'll see a lot more collaboration between devices. Right. I mean, and that's part of the promise is that is that there's the the device level product, but then there's also the network as as really as a product in and of itself. Um, so my my for you know. Uh, probably a little silly, but uh, you know your your home network with all the the pieces that play in it, or or you know on a, on a more on a grander scale, you have your your smart cities or your connected hospitals, um, connected health rooms, things like that, um, where devices are are able of uh, able to talk to uh, to each other and and uh, transmit data, etc. So, so I, I'd like to talk with you a little bit about about scale because um, it seems to be part of your. I mean, it is part of your business model uh, with Tesla, and it also speaks to um, the difficulty of taking a product from prototype, um, you know, to getting some market adoption, and and uh, you know, you know, once you've piloted it and then, and then getting into the thousands and tens of thousands, um, in, in terms of production and, and getting that kind of growth. Um, how do you see, um, or, or, or maybe, maybe let's just, let's start with Tesla and, and how that fits into, uh, pro, uh, you know, uh, scale up to, uh, the production process. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
What we found with our customers was that they very often, after they prototyped something on Tesla, wanted to go to production and weren't really sure how, because it is an opaque process, like I was talking about before. So we're we're trying to make it a more automated process and something that's just more like a service, like you have software as a services all the time all over the website, and we wanted to build something that was something some similar to that. Um, and what we found with existing products um, was that they just weren't designed for that scaling. So as an example, with Raspberry Pi, I mean, it was designed to be a learning tool um, and it's made in really high volume. But if you want to, if you prototype something on that and then you want to move to production, you're going to have a really, really hard time sourcing the Broadcom chip because Broadcom generally only sells in really high tens of or hundreds of thousands of units. Um, so they're not really going to listen to a small person just starting their company. Um, and similarly, BeagleBone, nobody really knows how, but it has extremely low prices on all their parts. So if you wanted to base the design off of BeagleBoard, um, you're, you might end up being more expensive than the original BeagleBoard with, with, less, with less functionality. So we actually see a lot of people embed BeagleBoard right into their products. Um, even though it's you know relatively expensive at forty dollars, um, so we wanted to help people sort of take that next step. And it's interesting because if you look at Kickstarter or any other crowdfunding sites, usually on average the first run of any new product is going to be a couple hundred to a couple thousand, maybe up to ten thousand. Um, and Hopefully, as the company grows, their their manufacturing sizes will get larger. But that's just generally what the first batch is for the first early adopters. Um, and the interesting thing about that volume is that you're sort of in this weird place where um, it's very possible that it it makes less sense to build your own custom hardware be, rather than using an off the shelf part. For example, with Tesla, if we're building it in tens of thousands. And you want to build something in quantity 1,000, you know, if you use off-the-shelf parts, you're getting the economies of scale of 10,000 rather than you buying pieces yourself at 1,000. So it's this weird middle ground that hasn't really been served very well of, all right, well, how do we take, how do we apply the economies of scale from something like an off-the-shelf part, but then allow some pseudo customization for whatever the specific needs of that customer is. So with Tesla 2, one thing that we're trying out is, you know, if people do use modules that they plug into the 10-pin ports on Tesla, um, maybe we can just automatically integrate those modules into a single PCB. So you don't have the 10-pin header anymore, and it looks more professional, and it doesn't wiggle when it shakes and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and it looks like a professional offering. Or, you know, if, if they're not using the Ethernet port or the USB ports or some of the 10-pin module ports, let's just take those parts off and save the money on their bill of materials. And that's relatively easy to do. So we're trying to find these creative ways to make um, pseudo-customization possible at this medium-level scale um, for people who are trying to build products. Right. So, so that's been going pretty well. I mean, you've... That that seems to be a, a market niche that that really needs to be served. How's that How's that going? Um, it's it's hard to say because there are definitely many people who are interested in it. About thirty percent of the people who've pre-ordered Tesla Two are interested in building a product. Um, so I think the fact that we are explicitly saying 
hey, we're not just a development board, we're a path from development into production, mm -hmm. um, has caught a lot of people's eye. Um, that being said, it's about 130, 150 people who are trying it out. So I don't know how large the market is yet. Maybe once we go through the process with a few different people and prove that the technology is viable and you know it's not some sketchy, weird website where you don't know what you're going to get, maybe we'll get more people interested. Mm -hmm. I think that it's it's been an inconclusive uh, result whether or not it's something that will catch on. But once we try it out a, a little bit more and give it more time, we might be able to say, yes, this is something that a lot of people want or no, they, they'd rather just, you know, have the 10 pin headers and everything populated and don't want to go through that process. Right. So, so I want to uh, shift gears a little bit because we've been um, talking a lot about um, sort of the, um, the prototyping and the early stages of getting a product um, to market and and finding an audience for it and 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 you know getting that into production. I'm I'm wondering what your perspective is on um, large companies that that really do need to innovate and see all this activity at the we'll call it at the grassroots level where where people are creating new things very quickly. Uh, with products, uh, you know, like Tesla or, you know, Arduino or however they're, you know, 3D printing their cases for things and, and creating all this incredible innovative stuff um, that at the same time, you know, you've got your GEs and your Samsungs of the world um, that, could, that could very much, you know, take advantage of um, some of those new ideas that are being um, brought to life. Uh, at the grassroots level, have you in in your in your experience so far have you have you seen what what what's the interaction between you know these these uh, smaller very innovative startups and and you know larger companies that definitely need to innovate but you know may not have the the cultural capacity or um, you know are looking to acquire um, uh, startups. So there are two sort of interactions between these large companies and startups like us that I've seen. Um, the first is that a lot, of the a lot of these companies like Microsoft and SAP have software services that they're trying to sell. Mm -hmm. And they see companies like us as like, quote unquote, the new cool thing. So they're actually some of our biggest customers because they buy Teslas to attract people to their hackathons and because it's the fastest way to connect data up into their cloud services. Mm. So that's one thing. And so they definitely have an eye out for like what developers are trending towards and, and trying to integrate those tools into the other services that they're already offering. Um, the other thing is, you know, companies who want to create a compelling service or product and don't have, don't have it already set up. Um, and, We've seen a little bit of that as well. I mean, it's it's really often these big companies who whose mantra is, you know, uh, if it's not built here, it's not great. So a lot of the times they'll just spend millions of dollars investing in their engineers building everything from scratch. And after a year, they get kind of frustrated and they're like, well, you guys have accomplished very little. And why didn't we just build it off of, you know, something that's existing? And so I think more so recently than before, we're seeing a lot of these big companies come to us and say, all right, well, we wanted to use Tesla. How would we use it internally and then build out on top of it? And so there isn't a massive, massive uptake from big companies using 
smaller startups tools to, to build out their products yet. Um, I think a lot of it is trepidation and the fact that it's like, all right, well, if this company gets bought, what happens to what we're in the middle of? And being open source certainly um, appeases some of those those fears, but I think it, it still exists. So I'm really hoping that more and more big companies will start to use these tools that are specifically developed to help anyone move faster, not just the individual entrepreneurs who mm-hmm. who need to move fast to beat these larger guys to market, but anybody could use these to, to build faster and and by iterating faster you become a more uh, you know a more innovative company. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. So that's it for episode 110 of The Digital Life. I'm John Follett, and I'll see you next time.